Well, good morning and uh, perhaps Merry Christmas. Didn't know Christmas followed so closely after Easter, but in Chicago it occasionally does. Uh, Greetings to those joining us at uh, Crossroads Highland Park and upstairs at the 01. And thanks to the musicians who uh, are writing songs and preparing them for us to help us drive the truth a little bit deeper into our heart. Um, When when Brad came to me and said, hey, we want to write songs for each of the psalms that you're going to be preaching on, I said, uh, really, you, you can do that. Uh, okay, because that, I mean, I've lived 58 years, I haven't written a single song. So I, th- that's sort of lost on me that you could just do that. He goes, yeah, no, we could do that. And uh, I did reflect back. I saw, um, went to a concert at Northwestern University 10 years ago, and, and they they performed a song. They created a song sort of in real time. There was a this jazz percussionist who was not just sort of snare drums and drums, but was marimba and, and xylophone and all these sort of melodic instruments. And so he's doing this concert, and it was quite amazing. And then the jazz pianist for Northwestern on the faculty came. And uh, they, they said, we're going to write a song together and sort of see how, this, see how this happens. We met five minutes ago, and we're going to see whether or not we can do this. So it started with the pianist playing three notes, and then the percussionist was sort of pounding on his chair, and then the pianist was uh, laying inside the piano, strumming on the, on the chords, and the percussionist was yelling through a tambourine, and I'm like, oh my goodness. There are some things that are so bizarre that only a PhD can think that this is talent or good or something. I'm like, yeah, this is not working. And then slowly something began to emerge and they're going back and forth and it sort of starts to sound like a song and then it starts to build. And then at some point they jumped together, which was quite something because, of course, they're, they're now doing harmonies, and, but, but they don't know where the other person is going and yet it's working and it builds. And by the time it was over, a few minutes later, everybody's on their feet just, you know, stupefied that this song, it leads up to a crescendo, and they stop at exactly the right point. It was, it was amazing. So uh, I'm, I'm aware that it can be done, and when Brad said to me, yeah, we'll do this, I almost asked, how do you do that? Like, how do you write songs? But of course, we know how it's done, and it's, it's a combination of giftedness, some would call it natural talent, but I'm, I'm always a little leery of calling it nature as opposed to creation because I think it sends us down a certain path. So it's giftedness from God. And then a long obedience in a certain path, right? A lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of training. So this is, this is true for, for everything. We know how these things work. And this goes right to the heart of the psalm that we're going to look at. So uh, this past week I was in uh, Nashville. I went there for a conference called Q. I've been to a half dozen of these. It's a, it's a gathering of academics and politicians and journalists and venture capitalists and entertainers and pastors and business leaders. And, and it's, a, it's a Christian discussion. It's sort of a TED Talk format. So a variety of talks that are nine minutes each. And so three days of nine-minute talks from all these people. 
Pulitzer Prize winners, uh, you know, prominent business leaders, journalists, authors, and, but they have nine minutes, and the topics range from everything. It started, the first discussion was on fake news, and then we're talking, the next one is on food, and then we're talking about how to stop warlords in uh, civil war, and then we're talking about gender identity, and then we're talking about socialism and comparing it to capitalism, and, you know, it just, it just goes in every direction, every nine minutes, a different talk, and it's fascinating and overwhelming in all the ways you could imagine. But this was in Nashville this year, and something else was in Nashville this year, the NFL draft. And, uh, and so I ended up on an elevator with uh, somebody who obviously was there to be drafted, and his agent and a couple other handlers, but you could tell who, you know, you, you knew who the, the star was, and he was about 6'3", and his shoulders were about this wide, and his waist was like this, and he had you know, long arms and long legs and no body fat, and he was wearing really expensive sweat clothes and, you know, tennis shoes that probably cost as much as a house, and they were untied. And, and, uh, and we sort of looked at each other on the elevator, and I thought, yeah, yes, you can run faster than I can, you can jump higher than I can, your hand-eye coordination is a thousand times what I've ever aspired to. Yes, clearly, uh, you are the athlete. And I thought... It's a little unfair that you have started with the talent that you've started with. And then I thought, but you know what? Uh, I'm not envious of the hours and hours and hours that you have dedicated to get to where you are. Because here's the deal. We, we are the sum of the talent that we're given and the results of a million decisions that we have made. And over time... It's increasingly less about the talent and it's more about the decisions. So we're shaped by events that happen to us, but we're really shaped even more by our response to the events. We are, we are the product of the decisions that we make. First we make decisions, and then those decisions make us. And there are paths. And one path leads to writing music. And another path leads to the NFL. And there are paths that lead to a lot of money. And there are paths that lead to godly character and contentment. And there are paths that lead to destruction. <laughs> and none of this is new to you, right? Because first of all, it's common sense. We know this. I know that if I eat this food, this happens. I know that if I, if I spend all my time reading and studying the Wall Street Journal, it shapes my life this way. And if I spend all my time watching TV, it shapes me this way. And if I spend my time studying for my final exam, I get this result. And if I binge watch Netflix during finals week, I get this result. I know that there are consequences of the decisions I make and the pathways that I walk down. Some paths lead in good directions, some paths lead in other directions. We are the product of the decisions that we make, of the paths that we walk down. This is what we hear from coaches, this is what we hear from teachers, this is what we hear from bosses, this is what we hear from poets, 
Right? Robert Frost's famous line, there was a road that diverged in the wood and I chose the road less traveled by and it has made all the difference. This is what we hear from Jesus. <laughs> he'll talk about different kinds of trees and different kinds of fruit and he'll talk about two paths. There's a narrow path that is hard but it leads to where we want to go and there is a, there is a wide road that, that is easy but it leads to destruction. We hear this all over, and we hear this in particular in Psalm 1. So there are 150 Psalms. Uh, they're in the middle of the Bible. They are, uh, they are songs meant to be sung, uh, but uh, the first one, and, and by the way, and they're all prayers, except a few of them. And the first one is the introduction, and it's sort of the, uh, the overview, and it's actually not a prayer. It's a meditation, and it's actually a meditation on meditation. And uh, so if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Psalm 1, you have heard it read for you already. You have heard it sung, uh, and, and you will have a chance to hear that whole song. Uh, at the end of the service, and to join in in singing it, but uh, it is um, Psalm one is the is the overview and introduction, and I'm just going to unpack this for us because it's very short, six verses, but there's some there's uh, some real genius here. So it starts, "Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. So blessed is, uh, is a Hebrew term that is big and, and, it, and the, the grammar and the structure to this sort of would suggest that we underline it and star it. it, it is, it's an emphatic, it's a, it, it's, a, it, it's a declaration like, oh, how blessed. And then the term is actually in plural. How many blessings come to those who do not, one, so now we're going to get into just a, a, a list, uh, who do not walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. Now, this is classic Hebrew parallelism. So what you need to understand is, is that um, uh, Hebrew poetry, and this is poetry, some would say that 50% of the Old Testament is poetry. I think that's way too high. But this is clearly a poem. And so the first rule of Bible study is always to try and figure out what the original author intended the original reader to understand. And, and so we've got to understand what the words mean. And in order to understand what the words mean, you have to understand them in context. And context is shaped very much by genre. We, just, we know this intuitively. You know if you're looking at the paper uh, the Sunday paper today, that you read the front page differently than you read the advertisements differently than you read the comics differently than you read the opinion section. There's different styles of literature and you interpret them differently. And poetry has got its own set of rules that we understand. Well, in, in English language poetry, there's often an effort to rhyme words. In Hebrew poetry, you rhyme ideas. And so you just repeat the same idea. You're not making a new point, you're just, you're just restating the point. So when it says, blessed is those who do not walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, it's just repeating the same point. 
your, your, li- your life is likely to have blessings if you stay away from bad influences, <laughs> if you stay away from bad guys. But instead, whose delight, and this is uh, an interesting word, so I, one of the ways that you can figure out if you're understanding something in the Bible or somewhere else is to try and put it in your own words. And how, how is what written different from what you're putting down on paper? So I would have thought that it would say, but who loves, right? But who, who loves God? But that's not what it says. For starters, it uses the word delight, which is, um, okay, that's an interesting word. And, and as I was thinking about this, I was, again, as I said, I was in, I was in Nashville and, and I could, I could look out. So I, I didn't realize, slow to the party here, I didn't realize that the draft was a thing that tens of thousands of people would be standing in the streets for. I'm like, I don't get it. Like, I mean, there's no game going on. Like, what are you watching? You're watching nothing. They're inside, and they're going to announce, you know, that uh, with their first pick, the, you know, the Cleveland Browns choose so-and-so. And then, but everybody's dressed in their keen colors, and everybody's screaming and yelling. And I'm like, but it, nothing happens for like 15 minutes at a time. I'm going... I don't get it. And it's raining outside. Like, wait, what are you doing here? But I thought, okay, well, you delight in football. So you delight in football, and this is what it looks like for you during the draft. Now, it, I, I thought you, you're worshiping football. I thought this is, a, you're, this is a little, yeah, I don't think you've got your loves properly ordered here, but okay. Uh, I saw what delight looks like. So that you delight... In the law of the Lord. Now, so there's, they, they, there's, he's saying something very specific. So on the one hand, I would have expected him to say, who delight or who love God. Because the goal of Bible study, I talked about the first, you know, sort of the first path of Bible study is, is to understand what the text means. But our ultimate goal of Bible study is to love God. And in the end, we want, we want to love God. It's not simply to know things about God. So a lot, of, a lot of what sort of passes as study is just to know more about. Like, okay, I, I now know more about God. Okay, that's good. We need to know about God because if our understanding of who God is isn't shaped by Scripture, then in the end, <laughs> you're just worshiping a projection of yourself. If, if your God thinks like you do, votes like you do, likes all the same kinds of music that you do, right, and your God never shocks you in any way, your God is like you in every way, just a little bit bigger and nicer, right, no, you're just, that's not God. You're just worshiping yourself. And so we need to understand from Scripture who God is. And our understanding of God needs to shape us. But, but ultimately, the goal is not to know about God. The goal is to know God, right? That, blessed is the person who knows God, who understands God. Let not the wise man boast in his riches. Let not the rich, uh, the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. But let he who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows God. That's where we want to end up. And so uh, this doesn't say that, though. 
It says, blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord. It's also interesting to me that it, the suggestion here is not that the one who wins is the one who's the smartest. The suggestion is the one who wins is the one who loves best. Because, I'll say this, in the end, we become like what we love. The path that you're on, <laughs> you're on a path, I'm on a path, the path that we're on is shaped by what we love. We become like that which we love most. And so, it says, who, who delight, right, who are drawn to, who, who are inspired by, who love. And it, says, it is the law of the Lord and who meditate on his law. And law, by the way, is just it's referring, there's a, there's a particular part of the Old Testament that is referred to as the law, but when you look at this in context, it's, it's the entire Bible. Who delight in the law of the Lord and who meditate on his law day and night. So the first time I heard that I was supposed to meditate, I was a little scandalized. I was a new student at Trinity I'd been a Christian for about uh, four years, and no one had ever told me to meditate. And I thought meditation was what Buddhists and Hindus and people that are, that are sort of embracing the Eastern spirituality were doing. And so I, I get this assignment, I'm supposed to read this book on meditation, and I'm supposed to meditate. And I'm like, really? Uh, I didn't see this coming. So then I read the book, and then I'm scandalized the second time, because I'm like, how could I miss this call to meditate? Because it's everywhere in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, which open, as I said, with Psalm 1, which is a meditation on meditation. Right? The, the book of Psalms are prayers. There's no mention of prayer in here. It's not a prayer. It's a meditation on meditation. And, and what we have to understand is, in particular, what Christian meditation looks like. Because there is a difference between Eastern meditation and Christian meditation. Now, these are generalities. No one's happy with the way I'm going to parse this. But as a general rule, Eastern meditation is about trying to empty your mind so you can sort of slow down your heart, calm your mind, empty your mind. You get a mantra that is perhaps sort of something that is nothing that you think about to sort of calm everything down. Christian meditation is much more about focusing on some truth. Now, in fact, people that embrace Eastern meditation would say, yes, you're, you're right. It is about quieting our heart, quieting our mind, slowing things down. But we're slowing things down so that we can focus. <laughs> and I would say, as a Christian, it's about focusing our mind, but that includes emptying or slowing down or, or allowing things to settle. So I've, I've used this illustration before, but I don't think I brought in my, my mason jar of muddy water. And, and this sort of developed in my life about two years ago. I discovered that my youngest son's roommate worked at the water treatment plant while going through college. And so while we were visiting, I said, so tell me about the water treatment plant. What do you do? And there was this, took me this big, huge pool, almost the size uh, of here, of, of the, the Lake Forest Sanctuary. And he said, so we, we opened these valves down here, and we let this river water into this 
fill up this big pool. And he said, and then we, we let it settle for two weeks. And he said, and then we open those valves down there and you drink it. And I said, what about fluoride? What about carbon filters? What about reverse osmosis? What about all that stuff? He goes, yeah, no, we don't do any of that. We just let it settle. So I got some of the river water, and, and it looks, you know, sort of like this. And I had it, and I was just sort of curious as to how long it would take to settle. And I had it, I took it and had it on my desk, and uh, I'd play with it every once in a while. And it occurred to me, you know what? This is what my soul looks like on many days. And I can't see a thing. And I need to let things settle. And so I, I added, and, and it's been very helpful, so my morning routine is, you know, sort of prayer on the way to the coffee pot, and then into my study, and I read a psalm. Sometimes I read a number of psalms, sometimes I just read part of the psalm, and I read some of the gospels, and then I just sit quietly trying to think of nothing. It's not prayer, it's just, just silence, and to let things settle, and I got a piece of paper, so I scribble down all the things that I go, oh, I got to remember that, oh, I got to do that. And I just try and let things settle. It's five minutes, uh, ten minutes. This will take two weeks to to be something you want to drink. And by the way, I get bottled water whenever I'm in uh, Iowa City because it still seems to me like this is not everything it ought to be. But, But it'll be surprising how clear it can get. And then after five, ten minutes of silence, then I, I do a little journaling, and then I'll go to a more intense Bible study and dig down into something, and I will meditate on it. And, and that goes to a second difference between Eastern and Christian meditation. So Eastern meditation generally is looking for, for the, the, the spot where you begin to intuit something. And so you just sort of have the big idea, the big view. You're, 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 you're looking at everything and you're hoping that, that, that an idea in your subconscious sort of emerges. Western meditation, the Hebrew word that is used here is to ponder, to study, to pull apart. So it's, it's digging down and really studying something in particular. So it's, not, it's the opposite in that sense in that this is trying to get a big idea out of the big everything. And this is digging down and meditating and trying to drive it deep into our heart. And another difference between Eastern and Western meditation, or Eastern and Christian meditation, is that as I understand it, most engaging in Eastern meditation are looking, the goal is to sort of be settled, peaceful. And Christian meditation would say, no, the goal is to come into more fully into the presence of God and to drive the truth of God's word more deeply into our heart. And sometimes that's really reassuring (laughs) and sometimes that's not. So the the, uh, Sermon on the Mount is a meditation by Jesus on the Ten Commandments. And I don't know when you last read it, but it's not very encouraging, right? To read the Sermon on the Mount is to go, oh my goodness, I am undone. Because I, Jesus says, you have heard it said, don't commit murder. 
Well, let's think about that, right? And then he meditates on it and he says, no, don't get angry. Right? What is the essence of this? You heard it said, don't commit adultery. Well, let's think about that. No, it's don't lust. And he's, he's pulling a deeper truth out of this. And you go, okay, I may be okay at this level. I'm not okay at this level. And so the result of the meditation is not to be calm. <laughs> it's to be informed and then to be driven to a certain kind of action. So a few other things to note about meditation, Christian meditation. One, I just want to say, I think it's hard work. And the more we are training ourselves to be amused, which quite literally means to not think. You add the alpha in front of a word, it negates it. And, and a theist believes in God, an a theist does not believe in God. Uh, to muse is to think. Amusement is to not think. And the more we entertain ourselves, the more we amuse ourselves, the more we don't, the more we don't use our mind, the more we don't read hard things, the more we don't think and study, the harder it gets. And I just want to say, it, you know, it's, it's, it's hard work to think. I think it's also worth noting that it's uh, incredibly necessary because part of what we're trying to do with meditation is to drive these truths into our heart. We're trying, to, we're trying to get it deep down where things are controlled. Just knowing something doesn't change your character. Right? We can know a lot of things. It doesn't change our character. If we want to see our character change, like we, we have to lean into, think about, ruminate on, the, the, the meditate on the, uh, the truth that we're being told. And then the third thing I'd say about meditation is, is that Christian meditation seems to be the bridge between Bible study and prayer. So uh, it, it's worth noting that Psalm 1 is sort of a meditation, uh, and it's a meditation on Scripture, and then it leads us into the prayers uh, the, the 150 prayers that will follow, which end, by the way, with worship. You could, you could argue that meditation on God's word leads to prayer, and prayer uh, over time should lead to worship. But, but the point is, if, if you're not meditating on Scripture, then it's likely your prayers are pretty superficial. But when you meditate on Scripture and you're pulling out a deeper truth and you're pondering that, that changes how you pray. So, back to the text. Blessed are those who meditate, who delight in the law of the Lord, who meditate on it day and night. Those people are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So there's lots of references to trees in Scripture. And uh, Jesus uses them. Here they are again. Uh, it, it's a pretty common metaphor I think uh, there's two things here to note. One is that we need our roots to go deep. <laughs> we need our roots to go uh, and find sources of, of life and water and, and nourishment that are beneath the surface because sometimes things on the surface are not going to be very hospitable. And if we don't have roots that go deep, when trials come, which they will come, 
then we're not, we're not ready to weather those as well as if we have been rooted. The second thing worth noting is that uh, one, of the, one of the interpretations of the Hebrew word that is um, uh, to be planted is to be replanted or to be transplanted. And I think it's just a wonderful idea of, of the gospel in which we are, we are moved to something that actually gives life. So to be a, I mean, you got to picture the, the land of, of Israel, of Palestine. It's desert, it's harsh, it's brown, it's, it's, it's hard living. And so the trees there, this isn't New Zealand, right? The, the, the trees there are trying to eke out life in a, in a very desert climate. Well, you've got to have an underground source of water or you're not going to make it. And so uh, I think we want to be transplanted by God to those places that are rich and to get our roots to go down into these streams of living water. So blessed are those who do that. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff. The wind blows away. Chaff is the wispy, papery coating on uh, grain, on, on seeds of grain. And when you modern threshers, they just uh, they, they shake all this stuff up and so the, they, they then separate in ancient days, you see people with big piles of grain, and they're throwing it up in the air because the, the grain weighs more, and it'll fall down right away. But as soon as you get that wispy paper-like coating up in the air, a breeze will blow it, and it'll blow it further down. And so you're separating the wheat from the chaff. So chaff is, in one sense, the exact opposite of a rooted tree. <laughs> so, so a tree is permanent, and it's got life, and it's got, it's got roots that go down into the soil, and chaff is dead, it's good for nothing, it's, it, it, it blows away. So, not so the wicked, they're like chaff, the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand, will not withstand the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Very politically incorrect statements here, that there is a right way and a wrong way, uh, and that, that it's very counter to the spirit of the age, but, but here Jesus is again making these statements. No, there's a path that leads this direction, and there's a path that leads that direction. And if you're on the wrong path, you're headed in the wrong direction. And this, I think, gets highlighted again in verse 6. For uh, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So, please understand this. Uh, because people will come to me and say, uh, oh my goodness, my, you know, I did this. I cheated on my taxes. I lied to my neighbor. I did this. And, and now my, my child is sick. And God is punishing me for what I did. No. No, no, no. 99 plus percent of the punishment we receive is just the logical consequences of the sin. So if you said to me, I cheated on my taxes... And now I'm getting audited by the IRS. I'd go, okay, yeah, that's unfortunate. But that's the path you took. I lied to my neighbor, and now my, my neighbor figured it out, and now my neighbor doesn't trust me. Yeah, that's the path that we're on. And, and sin is, is always stupid behavior. If we could understand the consequences of sin, we'd never choose it. If we, had a, if we had a perfect heart, perfect will, and clear, and clear sight, we'd never choose to sin. We'd, we'd sooner, you know, lick a red-hot stove and suffer that way than suffer the consequences of what we're going to do 
when we sin. And God is saying this to us. Like, you know, if, if you head down that path, you are going to suffer. It's a path that leads to destruction. And, and so I remember as a probably five or six years old, I was trying to learn how to light matches. And my mom said, okay, I will, I will help you learn how to light matches. But here's the rule. You only light matches when I'm around. You cannot light matches. You cannot practice this when I'm not around. You only light matches when I'm around. That lasted until she wasn't around. And then I'm trying to light matches. And thankfully I didn't burn the house down, but I burned myself. Right? And then I'm trying to hide the fact that I've got this burn. And, and of course, I'm six years old, so I'm not able to hide it very long. And uh, it's that, that's sort of like God saying, look, if you go down this path, these are the consequences of this path. And, and, and you're on a path. I'm on a path. And we've got to understand that we're going to make these decisions, and these decisions are going to make us. And if we want a life that is grounded in God, a life that works, a life of peace, even in the midst of trials and suffering, then it is a path that, that, is, that is grounded in meditating, thinking about, driving into our heart the law of God. That draws us to him. So <clears throat> wrapping this up, let me make uh, two other observations. If you want to learn, just generally about this whole series, if you want to learn how to pray, then pray the Psalms. Okay? God has given you the prayers to pray. They're in the Psalms. And uh, Jesus had memorized the Psalms. So 10% of the things that Jesus says in the Gospels are just quotes out of the Old Testament, many out of Psalms. He, he'd memorized the Old Testament. And, and you look back uh, a thousand years and you see that the, the, the commitment that people made to the Psalms. So Benedict, the guy that started the Benedictine order, he had all of his monks sing through the Psalms every week. Right? So every week you were singing through the whole Psalms. The Book of Common Prayer set it up uh, so that every month everybody went through every psalm. The uh, Calvin, when he was launching his church in Geneva in, in the 16th century, set it up so that twice a year every psalm was read in Scripture or was read in the service. We could do that. Services would be twice as long. And, and, but, but you see this commitment. And, and what you get when you are going through the psalms over and over and over is that some of the psalms are happy and they, they express... They express a life that's working and in love and joy. And some of the psalms are angry screams at God. They're filled with doubt. They're filled with disbelief. They're filled with anger. And, and they're raw and they're real. But God has given us prayers to pray in any situation. So you want to know how to pray, pray you want to take your prayer life deeper, use the psalms. The last thing I'll say is that, is that um, it's just worth noting that Jesus is the, is the focus of meditation on Psalm 1. So when you, when you get through this, who is it that delights in the law of the Lord? Jesus is the one who ultimately delights in the law of the Lord. In Hebrews 10, 19, he, he basically quotes Psalm 1. He says, I have come to do the will of God. And in Psalm 22, which he, which he quotes on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is, a, it is a cry of desperation as God 
turns to look away from sin. It is also the way Jesus was drawing everybody's attention to Psalm 22. Because you didn't, they weren't numbered back then. So if you wanted to draw people's attention to a psalm, you quoted the first line. This is the first line. And you go to Psalm 22, you see all kinds of other things that Jesus is saying. And it leads from desperation into trusting God. But there's a line in there that says, I am becoming like dust. So Jesus becomes like dust. Like chaff. Jesus becomes chaff so that we can be transplanted to a place that will give us eternal life. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the prayers that you have given us to pray. And we we pray that even in the midst of a culture that is moving rapidly, in a culture that is quite shallow, uh, in a culture where we can easily entertain ourselves every waking moment and not move towards deeper thoughts, in a culture that that tries to separate consequences from actions. Uh, In the midst of that culture, we can see here the wisdom of this first psalm that says we're on a path and that path is going to take us somewhere. Help us to be on the path uh, that follows Jesus Lord Jesus, thank you for becoming dust, becoming chaff, that we could be transplanted as streams of living water. Uh, Guide us. Bless us, we pray this day. Amen.